Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in! Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. I'm your host, Abby Rancor. And again, thank you for tuning in. This is our Bible episode of the week. Um, This is now a staple of my channel. Every week we release an episode on Monday that is faith, politics, or history-based. And on Thursday we read or we go over a summary of the section of the Bible we read. Um, If you want the reading plan, um, I will post it on my Instagram so you can follow along. But this week was Joshua 19 through Judges 18. And this one was kind of tough to read, I think, honestly, because, well, part of it wasn't. Part of it was pretty straightforward, but the other part had a lot of names and there's a lot of movement happening. So there's a lot of like tribes battling tribes and um, kings' names uh, that are referenced and areas of land that are referenced, but they are inhabited by a tribe that's like different than the name of the land, you know? So it was kind of hard to track where everyone was moving, but even above that, I felt like it was, it was just so frustrating. Like if you have been listening to the Bible podcast for a while, you um, may remember me saying that the Israelites are very frustrating or they were in some of the earlier books. Like when they were coming out of Egypt, they kept saying, oh my gosh, if we, if only we had died in Egypt, if only we were back in Egypt, all of that kind of thing. And then like, as the story has progressed, it's become manageable. Like, you know, they turn away sometimes, but they're really being like in Joshua, they were pretty faithful in being led. Um, under Joshua, we had the battle of Jericho last week and they, we left off on them conquering the northern and southern uh, cities. And so they're expanding their land. They're taking the land that God um, told them was theirs in their inheritance. So that's all been very good. It's been fun to read. It's been fun to see like where they go, what they do, the different stories. Like I remembered the, the battle of Jericho listening or, you know, hearing about it as a kid but I don't think I actually knew where in the Bible it was. I didn't know that Joshua led it. I didn't know all these sort of things. So that was really good to read. But then, you know, in the second half of this episode, we talk about judges. We go through judges. And it talks about how Israel, like many, many times, turned away. And at this point, the generation that really knew God getting taken out of Egypt and and arriving at the promised land at that point, the, that generation is dead. And so they don't know God. And basically so many times, and we'll see this in judges, I'll go over each instance, but so many times, um, the, like the Israelites have turned away, worshiped other gods, done exactly what God has told them not to do. And then said, Oh, save us. And then God raises up a judge to save them. So that's what judges it's about. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, we're going to do Joshua, the end of Joshua. So we're starting at 19, which was kind of an odd place to like start up again um, because it goes, it's, it's so tightly paired with 18, which we covered last week. So basically they have conquered the cities um, that God told them to go into. And they have, they had seven in chapter 18. They had 
um, still some land and some tribes that didn't have inheritances, so they cast lots and distributed the land. So in 18, it mentions the allotment of land for Benjamin, and then in 19, it allots the basically the rest of the land out to the different tribes. So that's when, if you look on an old map of the tribes of of Israel, um, you'll see all of them, that this is when those were allotted. So um, in chapter 20, the Israelites designate the refuge cities. Um, again, if you... Um, if you remember a couple episodes back, or they talk about it a lot, actually, but basically if someone accidentally murders someone, they are allowed to flee to a refuge city and not be killed or not have, like, be avenged um, without getting a trial. So they can run to these refuge cities and stay there until they have their trial. And so chapter 20 of Joshua designates which cities in the big wider state of Israel, basically, are going to be designated as those refuge cities. Um, in chapter 21, the Levites get allotted cities. So the Levites are the priests. They're in charge of the tabernacle duties and the priestly duties. And so they do not get a land inheritance uh, like a full kind of chunk of land like the other tribes get. They um, get the priestly offering. So if anyone makes an offering and a portion of it has to go to the priest, the Levites get those priests. But the Lord did promise some cities allotted to them, which are kind of are smaller, obviously, in the wide scheme of a tribe's land. Um, so they did get a couple cities that they would live in. Um, the... Okay, so in chapter 22, the Eastern men, I just labeled them as, which is basically um, the two tribes and half of Manasseh that wanted to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan. Uh, If you remember, their armies, like um, Joshua said, okay, that's fine, you can stay on the eastern side. But your men of like fighting age, essentially, have to come with us and help us take our inheritance on the west side of the Jordan. And then once that's done, you can return home. And so in chapter 22, it is now time where the land is experiencing peace. Everyone is resting. And so Joshua allows the men from the east to return back to their land. And on their way, they built an imposing altar on the route home. And the rest of the Israelites on the western side all saw this and gathered up and were about to go to war with the eastern side men. And so they all gathered up. They went over and confronted the these men that they had just sent home. And these men had just fought with them to gain Israel. And so they were like, wait, this is weird. Like, why are they worshiping another god when they just fought for Israel and the Lord? And so they thought, really thought that they were betraying God. And so they went in and um, they were about to fight them. They were about to basically throw down. And, uh, but they said, no, this is not a sign of rebellion. We are not, like, they said, if we are untrue, like, let the Lord show us or something. Um, but they said, this is not in rebellion. This is a sign to future generations when they see that we're on the east side of the river and there's a natural barrier and there's the west side of the river, we don't want future generations to say, well, you have nothing to do with God. You're on this eastern side. What do you have to do with God? So 
it was a sign of their dedication actually to the true God and to the Lord and their solidarity with the Western side of, of Israel, basically the Western side of the river. So everyone was very, very pleased about that. And there was no war to be had. So everyone went home and there was peace in Joshua 23. Joshua is now very old and he kind of gives his final speech, um, encouraging the Israelites to follow the one true God because they had been faithful when they were following, when he was leading. Um, and then Joshua 24 is basically a recap of everything that, uh, basically from them coming out of Egypt, from the Israelites coming out of Egypt all the way up until Jericho. Um, so there's a kind of a big recap in there. And then this is where he says the famous line of choose this day whom you will serve. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. This is on like every little decorative sign in every Christian house. I'm convinced there's always a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I will probably get one for the new house. I love signs like this. Honestly, it's like my guilty pleasure. I know they're cheesy, but I love this quote. It's so distinct and so straight to the point. And it really like throws down the gauntlet as for me and my house. Cause he is kind of giving a, an ultimatum here. He's like, Hey, Israelites, you can do whatever you want, but I'm, there's two options in front of you. Choose who you will serve now. And, but I am serving the Lord and he was their leader. So I thought that was, it's a great, this is a great chapter. I love this chapter. Um, and then he reaffirmed the need for the decrees and laws. And then it talks about how Joseph died at age 110, which is a very nice long life. He led well. And then, um, Eleazar who had taken over, I think he was the successor to Aaron. Wait, is that right? Hold on. Let me look it up. This is now an unedited podcast. I'm just going to fill you in. Um, because I was, okay. I'm going to go on a side tangent right here really quick. So basically I would record each podcast for like an hour and research for a couple hours, you know, beforehand. And then I, a lot of times would like sit down and re-listen to the entire podcast and re-edit and take out like if I sniffled or if I had a little like clearing of my throat or something, or if I had to look up something different. Obviously if the pauses get too long, I'll cut it out, but I was just spending so much time and, and I would barely make any edits. Like if I said, um, I used to edit out some of my ums, but I just realized that like, people don't listen to a podcast for just the perfect, uh, speech basically. Like it can be a little bit more real than that. So I'm pretty much, unless something catastrophic happens or like my cat just will not stop meowing or something like that, I probably am not going to be editing the podcast. So, um, okay. Yes. Eleazar, I just looked it up, was one of Aaron's sons. So, um, Moses's nephew basically, and he also died in this chapter and that is the end of Joseph. So overall my review of Joseph, I loved this book. I thought it was great. This was, it was very interesting. Um, it was challenging in the fact that like, I mentioned this last week with the story of Jericho, but if I was a person of the army or the military, and I was trying to fight against a fortified city of Jericho and my leader just said, okay, we're not going to fight like normal. We're just going to walk around the wall and then shout. 
and and it'll happen like we'll win you know in the natural world that'd be very hard to believe but um but it happened and god fulfilled his promise and i think now we don't have such a we tend to not have such a obvious like god's not coming around and telling us to march seven times around the wall necessarily but he does tell us to do things and sometimes they seem counterintuitive like it reminds me of um in duck dynasty the robertson family the like grandpa of the robertson family phil he told this story where and i've never forgotten this and this reminded me of the story of jericho which i guess i should have told in the last episode but whatever we'll tell now um, I just remember there was one time he said that when he was a new Christian, um, he was a commercial fisherman and these like river rats, they called them, which were just people who would steal fish would come and steal all this fish. And usually he would chase them off and have a gun and threaten them and all this stuff. Like that's just what kind of what you did. And if they got caught, they would lie and just basically like motor, like boat away. And so when he was a new Christian, he read basically to turn the other cheek or he read the verse that said, if someone steals your coat, offer them, what is it? If someone steals your coat, offer them your shirt or something. It's in the New Testament, so we'll definitely get there. But he read that and he said, okay. And he was trying to apply everything in the Bible to his life. So he basically went and saw these river rats stealing his fish And he boated out to them and he goes, hey, are you, you know, stealing my fish? Basically, they were lying, all this stuff. And he gave them all the fish. He pulled up everything in that net and gave them all the fish. And he said, if you ever want fish, just ask. Don't lie. Basically, he gave them all the fish. And they were flabbergasted. Like, they didn't even know what was really happening because no one had ever done that before. They were shocked. And... He said that it was never a problem again. They never stole his fish again. And in the natural, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like you would think that scaring off someone or or threatening them or something like that would be the deterrent to not have someone steal your fish. But God knows best. And he said to do the most counterintuitive thing, which is if they're trying to steal, give them the fish. <laughs> and he, uh, and uh, Phil obeyed. And it worked out, you know, it, it solved the problem and it solved it with compassion and love. And so anyway, it reminded me of Jericho because it was just so outside the realm of what you would think that you would do. It's like, let's not fight them. Let's just walk around and shout and, you know, and blast trumpets. Usually that doesn't break down a wall, but when God has told you to do something, even if it's counterintuitive, you should probably do it. So that was, it was a great book. I loved Joshua and I really liked reading about him as a leader. Um, okay, so now we're in Judges and this is where it gets quite frustrating because I don't know. We, it's like I wanted to keep a running count of how many times it said the Israelites did evil again um, because it was quite a few. But let's get into it. Okay, so Judges one, it says Judah. Um, well, it doesn't say. I'm paraphrasing all this, but Judah is going to go up and fight the remaining Canaanites. So, when the Israelites were taking uh, ownership of their land, when they were claiming their inheritance of their land, they 
most of the time drove out whoever was in there or completely destroyed the city. But there were a few remaining uh, people or nations or cities in their land. And so they were kind of coexisting with the Canaanites. And they found the um, the ruler, Adoni Bezek. Um, and wait, found Adoni Bezek and fought again. Oh yeah. So he, okay. So Adoni Bezek was the king of the Canaanites. Um, and basically they started fighting him. The Israelites did, and they chased them away. They put root to them. It says the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Um, and the king says basically like 70 kings are below with their thumbs and big toes cut off, have picked up scraps under my table. And now this is what's happening to me essentially. And I had no idea what that meant because they cut off the thumbs and big toes of this Adoni Bezek once they captured him because he was the, the king of this area. And I was like, why would they just, why wouldn't they just kill him? Like why would they cut off their thumbs and big toes? And I looked at commentary on biblehub.com and it, said that this was very, very common back in this time, because if you didn't have your thumb, you couldn't draw back your arrow, I think, or hold hold your arrow. Anyway, you couldn't draw an arrow, so you wouldn't be a warrior, and you couldn't run fast, so you also couldn't be a warrior if you're without your big toes, because that is what helps you with speed. So a lot of times when people captured an area, they took the king and cut off their thumbs and big toes. So basically as a symbolic thing that they're not warriors, but then also I think they would become servants a lot of the times. And so the significance of this was that this king has captured or conquered 70 other areas or cities with 70 different kings. And he's done this same practice with all of them where he cuts off their thumbs and big toes and they basically live off of scraps under his table. Or that might be a metaphor, but it's basically like we conquered these 70 kings and now he's being conquered. So he was like, woe is me. He's pointing out the irony of how powerful he was. He sent this to so many kings and now he's being defeated. Okay, so then the Israelites went on to fight people in Debir. And Caleb, um, Caleb said that he would give his daughter to marriage to any man who attacks and captures the city of Debir. So Caleb's younger brother was the one that took him up on that, and Caleb gave his daughter to to him, which I thought was against the rules of the sexual law that Moses had, where you're not supposed to sleep with like close relatives, but I don't know if that actually applied to like your younger brother's daughter. I mean, I know technically it's uncle nephew, but I remember a lot of the verses said, you know, don't, don't sleep with your mother's daughter or like mother's sister. I don't know if niece and uncle was forbidden in those, um, in those, let me pause and look it up really quick. Okay, I'm looking at the sexual rules in Leviticus 18, and I see nothing about this very specific case mentioned. It basically says don't have sex with your mother, let's see, your father's sister, which means a man can't have sex with his aunt. 
but there's nothing about a man not having sex with his niece. So I don't really know what that's about. It seems a little bit weird. Um, maybe that's just a custom norm. Um, but yeah, it seems a little weird that you can't with the niece, but you, I mean, you can't, he could with his niece, but it's expressly forbidden to not with your aunt, you know, I don't know. So, um, anyway, technically I guess that's allowed. And Caleb gave his daughter to his younger brother in marriage. Um, okay. Then the Kenites went to live in the desert of Judah and attacked the Canaanites living, living in a Zephith, which is a city. And they completely destroyed the city. They drove out some, but some Canaanites remained. So the Canaanites that remained were forced into, into labor. Okay, in Judges 2, the, an angel of the Lord appeared at Bochum and said, You have disobeyed me. Why have you not broken down altars? So, you know, the Canaanites are living among them, and they were supposed to break down all the, the altars to the false gods that the Canaanites had, but they never did. And they were worshiping these false gods, and they were doing evil. So um, in Judges 2, it says, This new generation does not know the Lord. They serve the god Baal and the Ashtoreths, which are pagan gods. Um, And so because of that, God allowed them to be taken over and sold to enemies. So the Lord raised up judges to lead and save them. So that's like kind of the recap of what has happened. And now it's about to go into the different judges. Um, Oh, it also mentions that these nations that were around, like one could ask, well, why didn't God just give them... Because it always says, like, if they're about to go fight someone, it always says that the Lord has delivered them into their hands. So, like, he delivered the Ammonites in, into their hands. I don't know if that's, um, or, you know, he delivered this city into your hands. They would only go into battle if they know that knew that the Lord had delivered it into their hands. So, the natural question could be asked, like, well, why didn't he just deliver all of them into their hands? Why are there still Canaanite, Canaanites even living here because they should have just driven all of them out. And it says specifically that these nations remained among them because God wanted to use them to test the Israelites and teach them warfare. Because this, this generation of Israelites is the generation that, again, doesn't know God, didn't have to fight for anything. It's been a long time. And so the, the, uh, the generation that, that gained the land, that went to war, all that stuff, they're already gone. And so, you know, these nations were purposely left there by God to go test the people and teach them really how to fight for the Lord, basically. Um, Okay, so Judges 3, it says that they want to teach him warfare. The Israelites intermarried and served false gods. Othniel Othniel, uh, saved them after being sold, and the Israelites served um, they got sold and served for eight years and Othniel saved them. Then there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then again, they disobeyed and they were, then they were subject to Moab for 18 years. So every time they disobey, there is a punishment for them because again, they're serving a false God. They're not under the Lord's protection. So he lets the other tribes or other people living in the land take them over. So when they disobeyed this time, the Moabites took them over for 18 years. They were subjects of the Moabites. Ehud 
um, was raised up and it mentioned that he was left-handed and I kind of chuckled cause I was like, he, um, I didn't think he was relevant to the story, which was naive because it was very relevant to the story. He basically put his sword in his cloak when he was talking to the King. He like cleared everyone out of the King's chamber and was talking to him and then ended up running through him with a, with his sword, but he did it with his left hand, which is why it was so easy to kill him because it was unexpected. Um, cause it was like on the opposite side of his body. And so he killed the King of Moab in private and he escaped, um, very kind of nonchalantly. So all of his people, like all of his servants and everything were on the outside of this room and they thought that he was taking a while. And so, um, Ehud, when he left, he said, Oh, I think he's relieving himself. So they said like they waited an embarrassing amount of time, the all the servants and stuff to go in because they thought he was basically relieving himself. Um, but then eventually they did go in and realized he had been killed. So um, after that whole thing, the Israelites were free and they had peace in the land for 80 years. And then a guy named Shamgar, it doesn't give a lot of details about him, but he saved the Israelites from the Philistines. Uh, and that is Judges 3. So Judges 4, the Lord sold the Israelites into Jabin in Canaan, where they were oppressed for 20 years because, again, they were doing evil. They were worshiping false gods. Deborah was leading Israel at that time. So Deborah was a woman leader of the Israelites. And I, I'm not one to, like, get excited just because there's a woman leader necessarily. Like, everyone was so excited that Kamala was, like, the first woman VP. But I don't care because I disagree with her on literally everything. But for this, I was, like, kind of fascinated and excited because I was like, wait, this whole argument about women not leading. I talked about it a couple episodes, but in the episode where it says, like, what if God says something that I don't like? Because um, I was wondering about the question of women leading in a church or women like teaching, I guess teaching and leading could be sort of different, but, um, and also if she's not like a priest, you know, there's some argument there, but I'm just saying Deborah was a, the leader of Israel at the time. And so for a lot of people that are, were saying, um, women cannot lead in the church. Women cannot teach in the church. We just have to be only teaching other women. I mean, here's a clear example of Deborah leading the Israelites. And I don't know how I feel about like women, preachers I mean I don't like it would be so weird to me to see a woman priest or something or you know and it's even sometimes weird to see women pastors but then like I look at Sadie Robertson she's preaching she's teaching and it's like that seems completely natural to me and some people say yeah women can preach but they can't lead a church well if the church is just a body of believers or the body of you know yeah I guess a body of believers wouldn't Deborah leading the Israelites be a leader of the church. I could be completely wrong about this, but it's an interesting topic about like women leading and it kind of tends, it makes me think that maybe what Paul was saying about women not leading the church in the new Testament was actually, actually a cultural thing because pagans were surrounding them and they wanted to distinguish themselves from the other groups that were very woman centric. Um, the religions that were woman centric. So that's why, um, because obviously the Lord doesn't have a problem with Deborah leading. She was leading and she, he used her in a very big way, which we are going to go over now. So Deborah was leading Israel at the time. Deborah and Barak went to go kill 
Sisera, who was a, you know, a leader of the opposing army. And uh, basically, Deborah told Barack to go, but then Barack said, no, I won't go unless you come with me. And Deborah says, fine, I'll go. That way, um, it'll say that I, like Sisera was, Sisera was delivered into the hands of a woman. So, okay, so they go um, fight this, uh, let's see, they go, yeah, they go fight the Canaanites. And Barak chased the men, all the, the army, down Mount Tabor. But Sisera fled to a woman named Jael's tent. I think it's Jael. So Jael, I don't think it's Jael. I think it's Jael. But Jael welcomed him into the tent. He's, you know, she, uh, Sisera ran into this tent, said, woman, like, hide me in your tent. And she pretended to welcome him with open arms. He said, give me a drink of, of water. And she gave him a drink of milk, which is the first curious thing. I didn't actually remember this story. But when she gave him milk, I was like, hmm, that's odd. Because that doesn't seem like normal like why would she give him milk instead of water like after a long thing when you want water anyway i was like oh that's kind of weird like on a hot i just imagine a hot desert he just fought for a long long time and he runs in he has to drink milk like old cow's milk that's probably like the raw milk you know because they didn't have like pasteurization i don't think anyway that's kind of a side note. But then I did read Bible commentary about this that confirmed the thing about milk. Like the fact that she gave him milk instead of water kind of was a signal that she was not on his side. So Jael pretended to welcome him, gave him milk, said, lie down, take a nap. So he was sleeping in a deep sleep and Jael took a tent peg and drove it through his temple and killed him because she was on the Israelites side. Um, in Judges 5, well, okay, so then basically the cause of that was, yes, Cicero was dead. Deborah and Barak won. The Israelites won the battle. So in Judges 5, it's the song of Deborah, which is basically a recap of what had happened all through this section and a praise to the Lord. So they were like worshiping the Lord. And um, this what lasted for 40 years. There was peace in the land for 40 years. In Judges 6, the Israelites did evil yet again, big surprise, and they were given to the Midianites. So when the Midianites came in, it said they basically completely wiped them out. Like they were so desolate, their plants were stolen or destroyed, their livestock was being stolen and destroyed. Like they were desolate when they were given to the Midianites. And so an angel appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you. And Gideon said, which was interesting because, well, okay, let me just tell you what he said first. Gideon said, if the Lord is with us, why is this happening? And I don't remember anyone being so direct thus far in the Old Testament, be like, hey, a lot of bad stuff is happening. Where are you? You know, and I feel like that's how a lot of us feel now. Sometimes if things aren't happening, if the a breakthrough's not happening, if a prayer's not feeling like it's being answered. I feel like a lot of us say, like, if the Lord is with us, why is this happening? You know, that's a very natural reaction, I think. And I've heard a lot of people have a, sim- like, similar sentiment. But this has been happening since the beginning. Gideon said this. And because a lot of bad stuff did happen. But he basically was like, 
Um, it, it was very clearly because the Israelites are worshiping false gods again. Um, and Gideon is going to be used to get out. Gideon also questioned his status because he was the least powerful. He was in the least powerful tribe and the least powerful family of the least powerful tribe. And I believe he was the youngest. And so Gideon said, like, give me a sign that this, this is actually what I'm supposed to do, that I'm actually supposed to lead the Israelites in this way. Give me a sign. And an angel touched an offering and consumed, like, well, so he said, go get an offering. He put it on the altar. The angel touched the offering and it was consumed with fire. So he said, okay, I am, I am the person. Um, God told Gideon to destroy the altar to Baal. And he was scared that people would stop him or fight him. And so Gideon did it at night. And that's why the townspeople named Gideon Jerub Baal. Because, um, let's see, he said, there was a specific note I think I put about this. Jerub Baal means, okay, I just paused and looked up what this actually means because I wrote down what it meant. It means let ball contend. That's what Jerub ball meant. Um, and that was the new name they gave him after he broke down the altar, but I gave myself no context as to why he was called that. So I went back and looked and, um, basically his Gideon's dad, uh, was named Joe Ash and, they said, you know, bring out your son. He must die. He has broken down Baal's altar and um, cut the pole beside it. So the the place that they worshipped Baal was now destroyed. And they demanded Joash bring out his son, Gideon, who destroyed the altar. But Joash, because he was also faithful, as was Gideon, said, are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So, because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerub Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. So, very cool. I'm glad his dad stuck up for him. I didn't catch that the first time. I thought it was Gideon saying that to the crowd, but I'm glad that like Gideon's lineage is also staying uh, faithful to, to the Lord. Um, okay. So Gideon again, so he destroys the altar and he gets a new name. Okay. So now Gideon sounds a trumpet as a call to arms, but he's like still unsure about if he is the person to lead this, to lead this crusade kind of. And so he tells God to give him a sign. He's going to put a fleece on the ground. And when he wakes up in the morning, he wants God to show him that he's the chosen person by making the fleece wet with dew, but the ground around it dry. And so he does that overnight. He wakes up. He can wring out a bowl of water from the fleece. So it's definitely like it had dew. But then the next night he goes, okay, wait, I just want one more test and do basically the opposite. So he wants the rest of the ground to be covered in dew, but the fleece to be dry. And he wakes up and that's what happened. And this was making me think that God is one patient God. Because if you did this to a person, he's had like three signs now. He had the angel touching the offering and it was consumed with fire. So, okay. Then he was like, okay, it's definitely me. Then he goes, well, I'm still unsure. I'm going to 
let's do this fleece test. And it was like an overwhelming pass. Like God overwhelmingly passed. He wrung out so much water from the fleece and there was nothing on the ground. So clearly that's like, okay, I'm the chosen one. He did exactly my test. And then the next night he did the opposite one and he want, he like wants another sign. So I don't know. I just feel like God is very patient. If you did this to a person, they would have been like, uh, no, I've given you plenty, but God is patient. And he gave another sign. Okay. In judges seven, they're about to go to war. They're about to go fight for these, uh, they're about to fight Midian. Yeah, the, they're about to fight the Midianites. And they're going to take, I think it was 30,000 men at first. That's that's the army that they were going to take. Um, but God basically said, well, if they win with 30,000 men, the glory is not going to go to God because there's so many men. The Israelites will just think they did it on their own. And so they said, uh, basically thin them out. And so he said, all who tremble in fear leave. And so 22,000 of the men were left. Oh no, 22,000 left. And, oh, I, I wrote that down in my notes wrong. 22,000 men were trembling in fear. So they did not fight with them, but 10,000 stayed. So they're down to 10,000. But God says, this is still too many. They're still going to take credit for this if they win. So go take them to water and look at how they drink. If like, look at the separation. There's going to be two types of people. Ones who, uh, cup their hand, like who take the water in their cupped hands and kind of lap it up like a dog or ones who bend down and drink from, from the stream. And, um, 300 men lapped up the water like a dog, they said. And those are the only men that he needs, he is going to take to fight. So God chose them by saying, okay, go look at the men who are doing this specific thing. There's only 300 men left out of like 32,000. He's going in with 300 people. So, um, this, they're definitely at a disadvantage, but this is what God wants because if they win, they won't be able to say, oh, we were so good at fighting. You know, it was because we had like all these men, you know, if they win with 300 against the Midianites who are pretty powerful, then it's definitely God. Um, and then Gideon again was shaky in his confidence. So God said to go down, like basically spy down, go creep down to the Midianite city and he'll be encouraged. So he, he did, he snuck down and heard this dream that a Midianite had where, um, the Israelites destroyed the camp. And so they were encouraged. So the next day they went fought. They surrounded the city, shouted with trumpets. It reminds me a lot of the Jericho story because they surrounded the city and, uh, were shouting with the trumpets. God caused the Midianites because of that to turn on each other with swords. So they killed, they basically did most of the killing of themselves. Like they didn't even really have to fight the 300 men because they turned on each other. Um, the men called, the Ephraimites to come down against the Midianites and seize the waters. Um, in Judges 8, there was a complaint that said, why didn't you call us when they were fighting Midian? This was the Ephraimites. Um, and 
But the 300 men and Gideon said, what have I accomplished compared to you? My land isn't as good as your land. They complimented them, their land, their warriorness, and they kind of appeased the Ephraimites. So the 300 men and Gideon pressed on. They're crossing through the land. They are trying to pursue the two kings of this region, which who are Zeba and Zalmunna. Zalmunna. So there's two kings that they're trying to pursue. And as these 300 men are pressing on through the land, they stop and ask uh, Sukkoth, it says, for bread for their troops. And those people say, well, how do we know you're not like just you haven't already seized control of them? You don't already have them. Why should we give you bread? Like they thought that they were lying and they thought that they already had the kings in their possession and were just trying to get bread from them. And so they didn't give any bread to them they thought that they were lying and so he goes okay i will tear your flesh with thorns and briars and i was like oh man and i figured down in a couple chapters we would see that happen and we do um the people of so they continue on they're exhausted and they find a new group the people of peniel um they do the same thing and they also say no to bread they also think they're lying so Gideon ended up capturing those kings. He told his son to kill the kings, but the son was too afraid, and so Gideon uh, did it. And, yeah, Gideon, it didn't even take a couple chapters. Gideon did go back and, like, tear their flesh with thorns and briars. The people who refused them bread as they came back, they did. he did beat them with thorns and stuff um, because they, they said no to the bread. And then, um, basically then Gideon was going to be the, the leader. Yeah. So the Gideonites or the, the Israelites wanted Gideon to be the leader of, of Israel. And they said, uh, neither I or, nor my son will be the leader over you, but my, but the Lord will, will lead. Um, and I just lost my place in this. Hold on. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So they wanted Gideon to lead them. They said the rule, the Lord rules over you. It's not us, but give us gold. They made an ephod, which is something that's in the, in the tabernacle. It was like talked about a lot in Leviticus, uh, the rules about the ephod. And, um, but as soon as they made the ephod, Israel, it said, it said Israel prostituted themselves out and started worshiping the ephod. So instead of, I mean, they are so short sighted or so so short they have like short-term memory basically they literally said lead lead us and then they said uh Gideon said no it's the Lord that rules over you the one true God all this stuff they go okay and then immediately worship the object that Gideon makes that's supposed to be play a part in worshiping the Lord but they start worshiping that instead so there's peace for 40 years in the land despite this um but Gideon died and then after Gideon died, the Israelites started worshiping Baal and there was absolutely no loyalty to the family of Gideon, even though he had saved them. So, I mean, that's pretty typical for the Israelites at this point. They keep doing the same thing. Basically, they always have this judge, they save them. And then very short term, they go and worship Baal again. Um, okay. Judges nine talks about Abimelech and Abimelech is one of Gideon's concubine's son. Actually, I think it's Gideon's concubine's only son. 
Um, so he, his mother was from somewhere called Shechem and he had, so Gideon had 70 sons, uh, with many different wives, but Abimelech was the one that was the concubine. So he was kind of considered invalid and he goes back, Abimelech goes back to his mother's family in Shechem. Um, and he basically said, which one is better? 70 rulers, meaning his brothers or just me. Like I, I should be the leader. So he's trying to kind of overthrow them. He got a lot of money from his brothers. I mean, from his, you know, his mother's family and hired, it says he hired reckless scoundrels who, um, helped him and just were bad for him basically, which is a very good point about surrounding yourself with the right, right people. You do not want reckless scoundrels around you as your friends. Um, so anyway, that's a side point, but yeah, being like surrounding yourself with the right people matters. But, uh, he went back to where his brothers were and murdered all 70 of them, except for the youngest, the youngest survived. And the youngest, uh, yelled out from this tree and he talked in basically a parable about these trees. And to sum it up, it, he talked about multiple types of trees, but the gist was he repeated this with multiple types. He said, why should I give up my fruit and oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Um, so he's basically saying like, is this a good choice? Like you are killing your brothers. This is a bad ruler. And he is giving up all of the, you're giving up all of the good things that you can offer, um, just to rule over everyone and have this power. Um, he says, have you acted honorably to Gideon's family? Which the obvious answer was, was no. He killed almost all of, I mean, he killed all of his sons almost. So, um, three years later, animosity between Abimelech and the people of Shechem broke out. Uh, Gaul was talking badly about Abimelech at a festival. Abimelech fought Gaul and the Shechem people, and eventually Abimelech destroyed that entire city. But while he was destroying the entire city, a woman dropped a big millstone on his head and cracked his skull, like so it was gonna he was gonna die. And on the brink of death, he basically was like, "Kill me!" So it's not said that I was killed by a woman. So his own soldier ran through him with a sword, which, yeah, they really did not like getting killed by women back then because it was such a cultural uh, thing. So um, that was kind of interesting to read about that he was so he would rather just get run through by a sword by his own soldier than get killed by a woman. Um, okay. Judges 10 was pretty much, it just said the, a couple other judges. So Tola was a judge for 23 years. Jer was a judge for 22 years. And then the next section of this says that it, it introduces Jephthah. Um, essentially the Israelites did evil again. They were sold to the Philistines and they cry out to God again, but God says, no, this time I'm not, I'm not saving you. Go cry to the gods you have chosen. I thought this was great. I thought this was an awesome passage because it almost makes me upset when God just keeps saving them and the Israelites are so ungrateful. Like he saves them every time and the Israelites were so kind of ungrateful that they'd be like, okay, thanks. Like I'm still going to do exactly what I was doing. It reminds me of Pharaoh, like in the um, Joseph story when Pharaoh would beg for the plagues to be lifted. 
they were immediately lifted and then he'd be like, okay, well, never mind. I'm still not going to let you go. That's what this reminds me of. Um, but he, uh, God eventually gets rid or starts saving them because they get rid of all the other gods. Um, and then he says, whoever leads the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of Gilead which is the the region. So Jephthah is introduced in Judges 11. He is a good warrior. He was driven from his family as a young man because his mom was a prostitute. And so he was kind of seen as invalid as well. But now he was a great warrior when he grew up. So they want him to be the leader. And he said, if I win, am I actually going to be the leader? Um, Because you drove me away when I was young. And they said, well, that's not important. Um, But they said... They asked why the Ammonites attacked. Wait, I'm getting confused here. Yeah, so, okay, so they asked if he wanted to be the leader, or he's, he asked if he will actually be the leader, and they say, yes, you will be. It doesn't matter that we drove you out as a young child, like, you will be the leader. So he's leading, and he asks the Ammonites um, why they attacked the Israelites. And they say because the Israelites took land which Jephthah then has to explain that they didn't actually take the land. If you remember a couple uh, podcast episodes back, I talked about how in this whole journey of the Israelites, they asked to pass through a section of land and the kings would not let them. So through this whole like series of events, they said that they thought the Israelites were taking their land. Uh, Jephthah says, no, I have not wronged you. You're wronging me by doing this, by attacking me. Um, this was all in a message form. So Jephthah sent a message to this king. The king made, paid no attention to the, to the message. So Jephthah advanced and said, whatever you give me is the Lord's. So they crushed the Ammonites. Like they left nothing. And before the battle, this was, this was a tough one for me, but it all makes sense when I read some Bible commentary, because I was like, wait, what? This can't be right. Um, before the battle, Jephthah tried to get some extra kind of brownie points, I think, with God and said, um, when, when he said, whatever you give me is the Lord's, he also said, whoever comes out of the door of my house when I return home after the victory, I will give you as a burnt offering. And then it says that he returned home after the battle and his daughter came out dancing in the front like the front yard like she ran out to meet him and he tore his clothes and grieved and all this stuff because he said oh no I have to offer my daughter up as a as a burnt offering um and I was like what and she asked to go in the mountains with her friends to mourn for two months that she would not be married ever and they let him do that and anyway I was like that's really messed up like but then you read that chapter again and never did God ask for him to make this vow. Like, so, okay, most, all these other agreements that we've had, all these other vows that people have made to the Lord, it's a two-person thing. It's a covenant between God and people. So they say, okay, do this, and I will give you this. Or do this, like, uphold this rule, uphold this law, and I will give you blessings. Stuff like that. God was, this was a one-sided conversation with Gideon I mean sorry with Jephthah he just volunteers and he's like hey 
if you let me win, I will sacrifice anyone in my house. Whoever comes out first, I'll sacrifice. But God never said to do that, and God never agreed. God never was holding this vow as something that needed to be kept because it wasn't of him anyway. So Jephthah went and killed his daughter. Well, there's more Bible commentary on this. He might not have actually killed her, but God, he sacrificed her, whatever, and we'll get into what that means. But he sacrificed his daughter because he thought it would help him like win the battle, I guess. But God never said to do that. Like that, I mean, clearly that's not of God to go kill your own daughter. Um, but yeah, so that was weird. And it took me a little bit to be like, oh, okay, I see God. God was never part of this discussion. So this was a foolish vow and he shouldn't have upheld it or made it in the first place. Um, the other part was, I was like, wow, that's pretty gruesome. Like he killed his own daughter. There's two interpretations of this. One is that he legitimately killed his daughter as a burnt offering, like an animal. The other one is since they, she mourned her virginity, there was a, I mean, she, she mourned not being married. Um, there was a custom where if someone had to be quote unquote sacrificed, they would be paid their value in money to the priests, and then they would have to perform priestly duties the rest of their life, and they couldn't get married. So there is a thought process that said that she was a, quote, burnt offering, but if it's a person, they would give the money in shekels to the priest, and then she would be... Um, she would be forced essentially to do priestly duties her whole life and never get married. And that is the sacrifice, which makes a lot of sense when you, when she's going to mourn specifically because she's never married and because she'll be a virgin her whole life. Um, that tends to make sense. Also, he is mentioned, Jephthah is mentioned in the Hebrews 11 sort of like faith hall of fame and a lot of people think he wouldn't be listed there if he just foolishly made this vow and then killed his own daughter. And so I hope it's that one, but there's definitely debate on if he actually killed her or if he just paid for her basically and then just forced her to not marry. Either way, not good and not what God actually asked. Like he never asked him to do that. So it was very foolish. Um, okay. In Judges 12, the Ephraimites get called out and they say, why did you fight without us? Um, but they say, well, you didn't come to save us the first time. So we didn't want to call you out. And so the Gileadites fought each other. Well, it was the Gileadites fought the Ephraimites and the Manasseh. Oh my gosh. I'm getting tired. The Gileadites struck down uh, the Ephraimites and the people of Manasseh. And the Gileads captured the fords of the Jordan. So a lot. this is a very popular crossing area. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim uh, tried to cross, they would say, are you an Ephraimite? And they would say, no, I'm not. And they were told to say a specific word. And if they were from Ephraim, Ephraim, uh, they would mispronounce it because people from that region could not say this word. And so they could tell that they were from the Ephraimite uh, 
land and they killed them. So 42,000 Ephraimites were killed during this time period. Um, so Jephthah led Israel for six years and then he died. The next judge was Ibzin for seven years. Next one was Elon for 10. And the next one was Abdon for eight. Uh, in Judges 13, we are getting close to the end. This is going to be a, kind of a long episode, but in Judges 13, uh, the Israelites do evil again. They get sold to the Philistines. Um, Manoah's wife, so there was a man named Manoah, and his wife was barren. Um, and an angel of the Lord appeared to her and said that she would have a child. This is the story about Samson, who I had heard about. It reminds me a lot of Hercules. I have a feeling that Hercules was based on the story of Samson. Just a inkling I have that I might look up at the end. Um, basically, she, an angel of the Lord came and said, I know you're barren right now, but you're going to have a child. Don't eat or drink anything unclean. Never cut his hair. He's going to be a Nazarite. Or a Na- he's going to take the Nazarene pledge, which... I talked about in an episode or two ago, um, that is where you don't cut your hair. You, you're basically dedicated to the Lord for a time. Um, but this one, Samson was going to be a Nazarite for his entire life instead of a short time window like they usually are. Um, so Manoah's wife and Manoah both said, well, come again because we don't know how to raise him. So the angel came again, um, and they basically wanted a, a sign that this was going to be true. And so they offered um, a burnt offering. And then the they saw the angel ascend in the flame offering. And so they knew, okay, this is legitimate. They said to name him Samson. And so Samson was born at the end of Judges 13. Uh, in Judges 14, Samson wants to marry a Philistine. And this was actually from God because this was out of the norm. They said, like, can't you just marry someone within our own tribe? But Samson was very persistent in this. He said, yes, I want to marry a Philistine. Um, this was from God because he was, God was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. And when Samson was traveling to the Philistines, he tore a lion apart with his bare hands. Like they, they said it was like as easy for him as ripping apart a goat, like a little goat for a burnt offering. Um, so Samson tore a lion apart on his way with his bare hands. And then he took like a little break and he looked back and honeybees had started forming like a hive in the carcass and he got honey and ate it from the carcass. He didn't tell his parents that he had eaten, that he had killed this lion, um, and just gave them the honey and they ate it. Okay. And he, so no one knew that this had happened. Um, okay. So then let's see in, okay. So then he's in with the Philistines. He has this wife and he talks about a riddle. He has a riddle for them. And the, the bet is that like, if they win, they get all these goods of which included 30 like bolts of linen. And so everyone's trying to um, answer this riddle at this feast. And he said, you have seven days to answer the riddle or else I get the 30 bolts of linen. And if you answer, you do. So the wife was a Philistine. And so all of her family and all of the Philistines were saying, were trying to get her to coax the answer out of, 
out of uh, Samson so they could have all this wealth. Um, and he would not tell her. So the riddle was, um, like, the, the riddle was talking about the honey in the lion's carcass that no one knew about. So that's what the riddle pertained to. It was like, out of the strong comes the sweet or, you know, something along those lines. I can go read it. But, um, so no one knew and the wife didn't know, but anyway, she nagged so much just over and over and over, just nagged him until he finally told her the answer. And she immediately went back and told the Philistines the answer that it was talking about there was honey in the lion And so he then went and killed 30 men and gave it to the people who solved the riddle. Um, So then after that, basically they thought that Samson was going to hate his wife. And so they took, or they, yeah, I guess they thought that they were like no longer married. And so they gave Samson's wife to another man. But Samson came back a little bit later and was trying to go in his wife's room and said, I want to go see my wife. And the wife's father wouldn't let Samson go in because he had already given the wife away to someone else. Um, He said, well, you can have my other daughter. She's better anyway. But Samson did not like that. And he tied a bunch of torches to these pigs uh, or goats tails and had them run through the Philistines field and burn it all up. Um, So then the Philistines went and burned Samson's wife and father because of what all had happened. They basically turned on Samson's wife and dad and killed them. And then Samson attacked them and killed many and then ran and hid in this cave. So the people of Judah came to this cave that Samson had been in and said, what have you done to us? What have you gotten us into? Um, They took him to try to turn him over to the Philistines, but God released the ties on his hand. So he was bound up and then God released the, the, the binds. Um, and then Samson found a, a fresh donkey, like it was a freshly dead donkey and found his jawbone and started fighting with this jawbone and killed a thousand men. So Samson, we're getting the picture is extremely strong and has an extreme blessing with the Lord because the, the Lord is like loosening his chains on his hand and then giving him the strength to kill all these men. Um, he was very thirsty in this place, like venturing through this place after he had escaped and God opened a, a hole in a, a rock and provided water. And Samson led for 20 years. Um, Okay, in Judges 16, Samson went to Gaza and went to spend the night with a prostitute, which was confusing because I thought he was, like, very much of the Lord, but this just shows no one is, uh, no one is sinless. He went to spend the night with a prostitute, and the people of Gaza wanted to kill him, so they thought that he was going to come out in the morning, and they were ready, but he only stayed, like, half the night. He left in the middle of the night and tore the doors loose of the city, like, tore it off its hinges um, because he was, again, so strong. He then fell in love with a woman named Delilah, and Delilah was a bit sneaky. She was um, on the other side. She was uh, of the people of, of Gaza, and he goes, okay, well, if you tie me with seven fresh bowstrings, I lose all my strength, because they wanted to capture and kill Samson. Uh, so they tried that, and he did not... Um, 
he did not uh, lose his strength. He snapped him like twigs. So he escaped. Then he said, okay, it's new ropes. Sorry, that didn't work. Um, Then it was his braids were woven into fabric. That didn't work. But again, his, this woman had such, he was, she was nagging so much that eventually he just gave in, which tells you the power of a nagging wife because like he knows that they're going to try to come in and, and capture him. They've tried like four times and he still tells her the actual secret of what is going to capture him and like make him lose his power. So he says, if you cut my hair, um, I lose my power. So she cut his seven braids in his hair and the Lord left him. The Philistines then seized him and gouged out his eyes and forced him to labor to like in labor camps, basically. And, uh, um, Samson was performing for them and they were all kind of making fun of them. They were in this big, like building with these pillars. It was a big structure, like overhang sort of thing with these pillars And Samson wanted revenge for them gouging out his eyes and said, let them pay for my eyesight. And his hair had started growing back at this time. So he prayed like, Lord, give me one last bit of strength to break this building, this temple. So he went in, he told, um, some of the people there that were kind of laughing at him and performing to him, like, I need to go rest on these pillars, but I can't see anything. Can you lead me over? There were two pillars that were close together. So his right hand was touching one, his left hand was touching the other. And that's when he prayed to give for the Lord to give him the last bit of strength. And he pushed as hard as he could. And the Lord did give him the strength and the entire temple collapsed on the people. And he died, but so did like everyone all of his enemies also died. Okay, in chapter 17, there's a man named Micah who makes an idol and he puts it in his house. He hires a priest for himself and a Levite was actually hired as his priest. And so he goes, well, I must be in the will of the Lord because this Levite agreed to be my priest. And I was like, oh my gosh, even the Levites are going astray because the Levites are supposed to be like the chosen of the chosen They're supposed to do the temple duties. And so there was a Levite wandering through the land and he said, hey, live with me, be my priest. And the guy was just like, okay. So it's all kind of a mess right now. But, um, okay, so in uh, Leviticus 18, basically Israel right now has no king at the time. Um, And the Danites do not have a place yet of their own because they had not had an inheritance in like among the tribes yet. Um, and so they want to go settle Laish. Laish. Um, and basically they, uh, some men were sent out to go spy and they represented the Danites and they wanted to go explore the land and see where they could, could settle. So I guess at this point they don't know that they're going to settle Laish, but uh, they're just wanting to go see where they could settle. So, they entered Ephraim and came to this house of Micah, which is the one with the idol and the priest. And they heard that there was a priest in Micah's house. And they said, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. And they, the priest says, yes, your journey will be successful. So the five men arrive. They, uh, they arrive in Laish and they saw that the people were, um, it was like a very quiet city. They were all living in safety. There was no one really around them. 
and it was good land. So, um, basically they said, let's go attack them. The Danites said, let's go attack them. We've seen the land. It's very, very good. Uh, so 600 men of the Danites set out and they camped, um, in this hill country. Uh, so, okay. So then they were talking about the ephod where it's like, this is the idol ephod. Um, it's overlaid with silver. So there's like multiple ephods that had, are being worshiped here, but, um, yeah. So the five men took the idol and Micah's men started attacking. Oh, sorry. I'm a little bit ahead of myself. So the priest and the men, uh, the day nights, um, stole the idol from Micah's house and took it with them. And then they came to the land of Laish because Micah's men saw that this army was way too strong. So they didn't even bother attacking them. They just let them steal the idol. So, you know, they turned back, but the day nights and this priest, Micah's former priest went on to Laish, saw that they were in peace, whatever, but they attacked them, burned down the city, didn't leave any survivors, and then rebuilt the city, and that's how the land of Dan was established. Um, so that's how they got their inheritance. Kind of, again, gruesome, and they continued to use that idol that Micah had made. So that is the last chapter that we're going to cover today. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of idols. It's a lot of, um, not the best. It's like turning to and from God, uh, a lot. So that's kind of, kind of tough, but again, this happens a lot today too. It's like, God will tell us one thing a million times and then we just continue to do it. But the goal is always to repent and turn back and stop sinning. Um, but as we can tell, sometimes it takes a lot of time, especially when it's like a full group of people and generations are kind of dying out as like when they say peace was in the land for like 40 to 80 years, that means like a whole generation had passed. So it's hard to have that continuity. Uh, it sounds like with this whole group of people, but anyway, so that is our Bible episode for this week. This is a bit of a longer one. So thank you for listening. If you have made it this far, um, I always like these, they, I think they're really building my faith and I'm really getting more excited to read the rest of the the old Testament. Um, because when I first started, it's always kind of like, Oh man, it's always kind of a struggle to go and actually read a lot of it. So I am actually getting kind of spurred on and reading a lot more and being way more excited to read more. So I hope you feel the same way and make sure to go rate and review this podcast on Apple podcasts. And, um, yeah, I will talk to you on Monday for our next episode. I'll talk to you later. Have a great week, everyone. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday. Thank you.